Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, flood emergency. With climate change, we're going to see more and more of these uh, extreme weather events uh, more regularly. It means we have to think about adaptation, mitigation, and how we're going to move forward together. Extreme flooding in Ontario, Quebec, and New Brunswick. States of emergency are declared. The military has been brought in. Is this the result of global warming, as the Prime Minister and the Quebec Premier claim? How can the government mitigate the damage? Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale joins us, and so does Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who weighs in on the scrub. Then, Facebook fight. Canadians are at risk because the protections offered by Facebook are uh, essentially empty. In a devastating new report, Canada's privacy watchdog says Facebook has broken a number of privacy laws. Now he wants to take them to court. Is your information at risk? Does Canadian law need more teeth? MPs are here to debate that. Then, Singh's trauma. The word difficult doesn't actually capture how hard that was. Sexual abuse, an alcoholic father, racial profiling. The new memoir from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh reveals some searing moments in his past. How will all this affect him as he runs to be the next prime minister? Jagmeet Singh joins us today about his new memoir. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. So the next 24 hours will be crucial in the extreme flooding crisis that's forced communities across Ontario, Quebec, and New Brunswick to declare states of emergency. Water levels are expected to peak at levels higher than those historically bad floods just two years ago. The military has been called in to help protect homes, but still, thousands of homes have been damaged. There's been evacuations. The Prime Minister has said this is a sign of climate change, and the Premier of Quebec agrees, saying now people should be forced to move away from the floodplains. To find out the very latest about all this, I'm joined now by the Minister of Public Safety, Ralph Goodale. And Minister, thank you for joining us. Uh, Give us a sense of how the federal government is helping out these communities that have declared states of emergency. Well, the first line of defense is with the local municipality and with the province uh, and with uh, an excellent uh, uh, search and rescue and emergency uh, response capacity at that level. Uh, Lots of volunteers are are involved, including the Red Cross and others. Uh, when, When a situation, a natural disaster, whether it's a flood or a fire or anything else, uh, when it gets to such a level that it exceeds the local capacity to deal with it, uh, the, the province makes an official request to the Government of Canada for assistance. Uh, that happened uh, uh, last Friday in the case of, uh, of um, uh, New Brunswick and, uh, and Quebec, uh, and happened more recently in the case of, uh, of Ontario, particularly the area around Ottawa. When the requests come in, we assess them very quickly, uh, and typically the answer is uh, an immediate yes, that we are... Uh, Uh, that we are obviously prepared to help in every way we possibly can. The request often involves the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, and uh, in this particular case, more than a 1,000 Canadian Forces personnel have been deployed across the province of Quebec, uh, over 300 across the province of uh, New Brunswick, uh, and several hundred this this weekend uh, in uh, in Ontario, particularly in the, uh, in the Ottawa area and in the municipalities on, on either side. Uh, the idea here is obviously very simple, to make sure that we are doing everything we possibly can, federal, provincial, municipal and private sector, to protect people, to keep them safe and to protect their livelihoods. 
Yeah, Minister, and we're seeing the, the incredible work that the men and women in the military are doing, helping out these communities, sandbagging, and, uh, you know, obviously the work goes on, and, and it's very, very difficult work. The Prime Minister visited one of the flood zones, and he said climate change is uh, the cause of this. The Premier of Quebec has agreed. Um, is this a, a sign of climate change, or is this an anomaly? Floods have happened for, for centuries. What's your view on that? Well, uh, when you look at the, the hard arithmetic, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty hard to arrive at any other conclusion other than uh, the consequences of climate change are accumulating. Whether it's with, with storms and, and heavy rainfall and floods on one side of the occasion, or uh, uh, otherwise uh, droughts and wildfires that are happening in other parts of the country. Uh, the, uh, the, the severity of these cycles are deepening. Uh, the costs and the damages are deepening. Uh, we run a program called the Disaster Financial Assistance Arrangement, whereby the Government of Canada helps provinces uh, to pay for the costs of floods and, and droughts. Uh, and we have actually paid out more in the last six years under that program, obviously showing an acceleration, uh, than under the previous 40 years of experience with that program. Yeah, I should just say the Insurance Bureau of Canada in 2018 had a report on flooding and they said, as you said, in the last 10 years, the payouts for flooding alone have almost tripled to over one and a half billion dollars. But you talk about mitigation. I'm just in interested in your thoughts on Premier Legault, the Premier of Quebec, visited the areas and he said, look, these used to be one in a hundred year floods. Now, because of climate change are happening in this case, every couple of years, he said their government will offer $100,000 in help for damages. Then after that, that's a cap. Then they'll offer $200,000 to buy people's homes to get them off these floodplains. He said that's no longer feasible. Does the federal government support that kind of buyout plan? Well, we will obviously look at the proposals that Quebec and other provinces are, are making. Uh, if you think back uh, a few years to the, to the big high river flood in, in Alberta, which was the largest flooding disaster in Canadian history that hit high river in Calgary and, and parts of, uh, of southern Alberta, uh, the, uh, the municipality of high river uh, made the very tough decision that they would rezone the flooded area and not allow redevelopment in that area because it was simply uh, too vulnerable to disaster. So zoning is part of it. Uh, it's also uh, a challenge for the insurance industry and we're working with them uh, to see if we can have a, a kind of a co-insurance arrangement that would make commercially uh, affordable insurance available uh, in, uh, in the most severe areas. Building better infrastructure, protective devices, uh, is uh, is also part of the equation, uh, but we'll look at the proposal for for uh, for relocation. Uh, it it obviously doesn't make a lot of sense to keep on doing same old, same old, same old, and expecting there's going to be a different result. But Minister, let me just drill down. So, just on a specific, would the federal government support a program? And we could debate the numbers: two hundred thousand, a hundred thousand, of buying people out of their homes on the floodplain, getting people off of floodplains to avoid incurring costs in a potential uh, increasing number of floods. Specifically, does, does the federal government support that idea or will you seriously look into it and, and maybe support that number of 200,000 bucks for your house? We, we, uh, we, we haven't reviewed the details, Evan, but we will look at all the options. 
uh, and work very carefully with, with provinces and municipalities to make sure that we are as resilient to resist this kind of problem in the future as we can possibly be. We would not rule anything out at, at this point. We have to look at all the options, but we are doing that now actively through the Council of Federal Provincial Ministers that work on these issues. All right, I got to leave it there. Minister Goodell on a very, very busy week, obviously, with the floods. Appreciate you making time for us right here on CTV's question period. But coming up, privacy watchdog from Canada is taking aim at Facebook for violating privacy laws and then refusing to take responsibility. Wants to take Facebook to court. How can the government make sure your data is safe? MPs are here to debate that next. Stay right here with question period. Well, it's a David versus Goliath fight, and hard to believe in this case, the Goliath is not the Canadian government, it's Facebook. Canada's privacy watchdog is furious at Facebook, saying he's going to take them to court after they ignored the recommendations in his startling new report that they tighten up privacy protocols to protect your personal information. Now, the Privacy Commissioner's report uh, found that the social media giant was breaking privacy laws, failing to ramp up security protections in the wake of the investigation. So is Facebook too big to regulate? To talk about all this, let's bring in MPs. Arif Varani is the Democratic Institution's Parliamentary Secretary, and John Broussard is the Conservative Deputy Whip. They're both in Toronto. And coming to us from our Winnipeg studio is Manitoba uh, MP for the NDP, Daniel Blakey. Gents, good to have all of you on. Mr. Varani, I'll start with you. Um, in the wake of the Privacy Commissioner's report and the fact that he believes Facebook has essentially thumbed their nose at it, saying, you know what? We disagree. We're not going to take those recommendations. Does Canada need to toughen up our privacy laws and regulate companies like Facebook? I, th I think the time has come for regulation. I think uh, we've heard Minister Gould say that self-regulation clearly is an experiment that hasn't worked, hasn't worked, worked successfully. There have been instances where we've already taken action with social media platforms. Bill C-76 is a very tangible example of mandating a political ad registry. Facebook has complied with that effort, which is a good step in the right direction. They've also removed different players from their sphere, people like Faith Goldie, people ex spreading extremist views. So those are steps in the right direction. But more needs to be done. I think that's what Daniel Therian is talking about, and I think that's what Canadians are expecting. John Bersar, what's your take on this? The, the Privacy Commissioner is actually taking Facebook to court because he has no power to levy fines. What's your take on what needs to be done? Well, I think the Privacy Commissioner was very clear yesterday uh, and the B.C. Privacy Commissioner when they both stated that tougher regulation was required, not just tougher regulation, but also the ability for them to enforce privacy breaches like the one that they've identified with Facebook. And, you know, it wasn't just the Privacy Commissioner, Evan, that uh, did this report. The Ethics Commissioner, uh, the Ethics Committee, actually, back in December issued a report, and the Privacy Commissioner of Canada uh, was part of that report, and they said the tougher regulations were needed as well. So it's not just coming from the Privacy Commissioners, both federally and in B.C., but also the uh, All-Party Standing Committee on Ethics unanimously uh, adopted 25 recommendations, one of which was to look at regulation. Yeah, the Privacy Commissioner, I, I spoke to him, Daniel, Daniel Blakey, and he said a couple things. My report, he said reports from regulators like the Privacy Commissioner A should be binding, and they should have the power to levy fines. He's got, it's not binding. 
he can't levy fines, and so Facebook's basically just thumbed their nose at him. What's your take? Does the privacy commissioner need more power? Well, first of all, yes, I think he does. Or if it's not him, then we need some sort of regulatory body that does have the power to enforce regulations. And I think when a multinational company like that picks a fight with a Canadian regulator, it's the job of the Canadian government to step in. And, and, and I think they should be, instead of kind of humming and hawing about, you know, working up the courage to have a tough conversation with Facebook, they, they should be at the point where they're talking about what kind of measures, the concrete measures, they're going to be taking soon in order to reinforce the uh, privacy commissioner in his uh, battle with Facebook. We don't have to break new ground in order to uh, be able to be part of the solution here. We need to follow suit with uh, some of our allies who are already doing this work. And and we're not hearing today from the representative, from the representative of the government, even on this panel, what concrete measures they're, they're, they are seriously considering and looking at implementing. That's where the conversation need, needs to go. We don't need the general conversation anymore. We need to get into specifics well, well, as to well, how well, let's get this into government it. is going to uh, back up the privacy commission. Our Ferrani, it's a fair point. The privacy commission is clear. I need teeth here. I need the power to enforce this. I need the power to find. Why doesn't your government give the uh, privacy commissioner that power to actually do the job so big companies can't just say, sorry, we don't need you? Okay, so I'll respond to that and I'll respond to Daniel because he's raising some important points. Yes, other jurisdictions are taking action. Canada, however, is it would, I would be, one would be hard-pressed to describe Canada as somehow falling behind in this regard. The measures that we've taken in Bill C-76 are the first of its kind to regulate political interference and regulate political advertising across any social media platform. So that's where Canada is in the vanguard. Other steps that we've already taken were regulations that we passed under what's called PIPITA, which is the privacy legislation. And we've enacted uh, penalties to the tune of $100,000 per infraction for breaches of privacy, where you have to inform Canadians, inform the privacy commissioner, and maintain the records for a period of two years. So we've already taken steps, but more steps need to be taken, completely understood and completely agreed to. What Daniel Therian has suggested about issues such as fines, enforcement, and inspection are the types of powers that in Britain, for example, to respond to what Daniel was raising, in Britain they've contemplated a different kind of regulator who's separate from a privacy commissioner, a regulator solely for online uh, platforms. So what are you guys going to do? Like, like I'm just trying to figure out, you've been in power almost four years, are you going to put any new legislation down to give some powers before the next election? Like what concrete steps will you take? So what we are doing is what Minister Baines and Minister Gould spoke about in the last few days uh, to the national media, and that is outlining a digital uh, strategy for the nation that is based on a year of consultations that we had over the past year that is going to look at how to beef up the enforcement and the regulation of the sector across the board. It is not just a single uh, initiative for one minister. It is an across-the-government approach because it needs to be, and it also needs to be forward-looking. We're trying to get out of a responsive mold. We're trying to look at where the next breaches may occur, what the next regulation needs to look like for going forward right. and that's the approach that we're taking which is trying to balance a very sensitive issue for Canadians. 24 million Canadians are on this platform. It does do some good in terms of empowering businesses, democratic governance, people informing themselves about issues of the day and staying connected with their friends oh, okay. and family. Those uh, are things we're appreciative of. Uh, John Broussard, does that, does that alleviate any of your, your concerns about privacy risks for Canadians, privacy risks when it comes to private information being used for political purposes? Is the government doing enough, John Bessard? 
Well, I don't think the government is doing enough, and they're certainly not going to be able to, in this term of Parliament, move any legislation forward, Evan, in any noticeable time frame. So it's going to be left up to the next Parliament uh, to deal with this very likely. But I think the Privacy Commissioner was very clear yesterday that we do need a modernization of regulations, uh, regulations that give more power to either the Privacy Commissioner or another entity. And I think we need to heed the advice of the Privacy Commissioner for the sake of the privacy of Canadians. You know, Facebook and Air have talked about a $100,000 fine. Well, they make that in 60 seconds just this week alone. Facebook in the United States allocated $3 billion aside. They put that aside because they expect that the U.S. government is going to fine them in breach of privacy laws, and that's the, that's the type of penalty that they expect to pay. Yeah, big penalties. All right, uh, Mr. Blakey, what about you? What do you? Has the government done enough, or if they have it, what are the key steps they could do right now, especially as we're coming up to an election? And we all know, as the Privacy Commissioner pointed out, some of this private information can and has been used for political purposes. Well, I mean, I think that the big shift that has to occur sooner rather than later is actually attitudinal. So, I mean, you know, what, what we see with the government is a real reluctance to come out and say, you know what, we need better rules and we're going to set better rules. We see this in, on a number of fronts where they want to leave it to industry. They're, they're kind of beholden to this philosophy of industry self-regulation and they find it really hard to move off of that. And so, you know, you see, you see instances, whether it's major transportation companies, whether it's the airlines or whether it's, uh, whether, whether it's the rail industry, or, uh, or you see them treating companies like SNC-Lavalin with uh, kid gloves, it's because they ultimately don't want to interfere with these large companies that are writing their own rules, while the rest of uh, Canadians are expected to abide by rules set by uh, government. So they need to start right. treating big companies the way, the way they treat every other Canadians and start setting rules that make sense and then enforce them. Uh, i got to leave it there, gentlemen. Uh, Daniel Blake, Yara Ferrani, and John Broussard, I appreciate all of you coming in on a very important topic, which we will pick up later in the scrum. But coming up next, from sexual abuse to an alcoholic father to racial profiling, a surprisingly candid and painful new memoir from the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. How has his past affected his leadership? Jagmeet Singh joins us next right here on Question Period. We'll be right back. Well, it is not your typical political memoir, the kind of book all leaders usually release before an election. Books that are usually more political than personal, but not the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's new memoir, Love and Courage. This is a deeply personal account of some of the most searing moments of his life. Sexual abuse, an alcoholic father, racism. And frankly, only at the very end does Mr. Singh get to politics. So how has this shaped his life as he runs to be the next Prime Minister of Canada? Let's find out. Joining me now is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Thanks for, thanks for being here. My honor to be here. Uh, pretty personal stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, different memoir, frankly, than I've ever read before. A lot more searing and, and, and personal. Of all the things you cover, uh, the sexual abuse, your father, what was the most difficult thing to write about? The most difficult thing to write about was for, cer for certain my dad. Uh, talking about that was something, it was probably the most difficult thing I had to deal with. That and the financial insecurity. That's a, a big part of the story where we didn't know what was going to happen next. We were worried about how we were going to survive as a family financially. Also something as simple as there's a part in the story where I talk about not knowing if we would have a place to live. And that was a really scary part. So remembering those tough moments was difficult. Let um, me just remind our, our viewers, your father uh, is an immigrant with your mom. He comes over. He's a doctor. His 
credentials are not recognizing Canada. He works very hard uh, to get those credentials, moves you guys, you know, Windsor, Newfoundland, all over the country. Finally, he gets settled down, but he, he's an alcoholic. When did you know your dad was an alcoholic? So it was something that when I was a kid, there were signs that just didn't seem to be totally right. And when I would visit other friends, I then clicked in, this is not normal, that, you know, this is not how normally dads would act or what my dad was doing wasn't what other parents were doing. So I started to realize that this is not normal. And then I started to be a bit embarrassed. If kids were to come over to my house, I'd have to check to see, is my dad okay or not okay? And if he wasn't, I wouldn't want friends to come over. Or if they did come over and I didn't know what state my dad was in, it was, it was a big a big question. I was always worried about that. How bad did it get? I mean, you described some scenes in there. Eventually, it went to the point where you literally threw your father out. He was tormenting your mother. Uh, you, your brother and sister, were terrified of him. How bad did it get for your dad? Yeah, it got really bad. I mean, it got so bad that that was the, probably the most difficult decision I had to make in my life was to say, hey, Dad, I love you, I care about you, but you can't be hurting the people around you. It just is, doesn't make sense that one person can hurt so many other people. And so I had to make that decision, and, and, and he was shocked. I was shocked. It was a difficult thing to do. I can't, the word difficult doesn't actually capture how hard that was. That was the hardest moment of my life. Yeah, and the portrayal when he loses his license, difficult. The other element here is you were a 10-year-old boy, you're taking Taekwondo lessons, and your instructor sexually abuses you. Talk about how that, what happened there and how that affected you. Well, the, the complexity of the situation is that I went to martial arts because I was being bullied so much in school that my parents wanted me to have more confidence. And it was working. Going to that, going to class, training in Taekwondo gave me more self-confidence, made me feel like I could def defend myself. And the person that was entrusted with giving me the skills to defend myself was the same person that, that abused or, or exploited that relationship to then abuse me. That was really hard to understand. He also, in class, would sometimes stop other kids. There's actually one other kid that would sometimes bully me because I was one of the smallest and youngest. He would bully me, and he would stop him from bullying me. So at sometimes he would be my protector, and then he was the same person that, that exploited that vulnerability. Well, was that part of grooming and, you? Probably. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the whole idea, that he gained that trust. Right. He saw that I was vulnerable. He saw that I needed this. I would train extra before class and after class, do extra push-ups and sit-ups. He could tell that I needed this. I wanted to be stronger. I used to say to my mom all the time, Mom, when will I get bigger? When will I get stronger? And she thought of it as just a kid that wanted to grow up. But I, I wanted to be stronger to defend myself and protect my mom and my family. Did you, you had a lot of shame you write about. Did you ever tell anyone that you were being sexually abused? No, and that's the, one of the hardest things about the story is that when it happened to me, I thought that there was too much going on, too much burden already on my mom. Things are already unpredictable and unstable. I didn't want to further burden her, so I didn't tell her, even when I had a chance. Even when she asked me, because there was some information that there was some allegation out there, and so she said, you know, did anything ever happen to you? And I said, no, no, not at all. And, and I also felt in the back of my head that I was to blame, that I could have controlled yeah. it, I could have stopped it from happening. I chose to take this special program that he offered, and it was my fault. And I didn't speak about it for a decade. And then when I first spoke about it, it kind of lifted a bit of the weight. But it was really when a dear friend told me that you realize this wasn't your fault. You were a little kid when it happened that I just, like, it just released a flood of emotion. And I realized, you know what? Yeah, it wasn't my fault. And that's when I really started to heal. I mean, racial profiling, sexual abuse. You had the three, your, your father was an alcoholic. How has all this shaped you as a leader of a federal party? Well, my dad's story is important to m mention that it's so complex because he was such a generous and kind and giving person when he wasn't drinking. And his story is such an arc of up and down. And then the fact that I always believed that he would get better, even though it didn't make any sense to believe that. 
um, the idea of to love someone that that's so complex and that's hurting you and hurting your family, that's a part of what I, what I believe is that, that, that my dad was, was ill. He was sick. Uh, addiction is an illness. And when I realized that, I realized that anger, frustration weren't going to change any of that. That maybe I couldn't help him, but the best I could do was try to continue to love him, provide the support, and hope that he would get better. And that's why I approach everything with this limitless, limitless love. This idea that unconditional love and support for our fellow human being is how we move forward. Um, I come from a place where I've understood a little bit of struggles that Canadians face. Financial insecurity, feeling like you don't belong, uh, abuse, vulnerability. I understand a bit of what Canadians go through. And I really believe I was only able to make it because people helped me out. Friends, family, and social programs were there for me. Services were there for me when my family needed. My dad got better, not because right. of a fancy rehab center. He went to a modest, publicly funded rehab center in Windsor that saved his life and saved our family. So I believe in building those services and programs for everybody. One of the things that I was really struck with reading your book was how your Sikh faith has informed your entire and animated your life and your mission. Uh, and it's and it's very it's a very deep part of it. Even though you had a lot of racism and you were you you had to deal with that. Uh, now you're going to run for prime minister as the first visible minority leader of a major party to do so. Um, do you worry that some of those same issues you will be confronted with racism, bias, the inability to be accepted as just a Canadian? Even though I'm faced with challenges or maybe some barriers, my goal is to find the connection. Even if there's a, a situation where someone seems to be not someone that wants to. Hear hear the message that I have to share, I will still try to find a way to find the connection, something that links us to shared humanity, and that's, that's what I've been informed by. That's what my, my life story has taught me. Look what just happened in Quebec, where you need a lot of seats politically. And in Quebec, they've just passed a bill, the so-called secularism bill, where if you wore that turban that you write about, the process of you wearing it, your family, it's so important. You could not be a teacher in Quebec right now if you applied. They'd say, you got to take that off. I imagine you would not take that off. You got to win votes in Quebec. That happens to be a very popular law there right now. What are you going to tell the people of Quebec? Is the secularism law racist? Well, first off, I don't think it's as widespread, unanimous as we were led to believe. Uh, there is a number of parties that have come out. Quebec Solidaire has come out firmly opposed yeah. to it entirely. Uh, Projet Montréal has also come out and saying this is not something we support. There's been a number of civil uh, society groups and organizations that have come out and saying this is not what we believe is appropriate. Uh, I don't think it's right. I think it's wrong. I think most importantly, though, it's sad. There's so many young kids that could give so much back to society that are now being told that they cannot do something that maybe they dreamed of doing. Maybe a young kid wanted to be a teacher, wanted to be a police officer or a judge, and now is being told that just because of who you are, you cannot do that. So that is, is it wrong. A is it a racist law? It's wrong. It's a law that is absolutely wrong. I mean, in terms of Quebec society, I understand where they're coming from in terms of why they're so worried about religion. They faced a, a lot of impact, a negative impact of Catholicism on society. Uh, the impact of the church on, on the state was something that people were really worried about. Uh, it offended many people, and it had devastating impacts on the rights of women and the rights of the LGBTQ community. So I get why people are concerned, uh, but this law is wrong. And so you're going to openly oppose that law? I've openly said it's wrong. Tomorrow the House gets back. Uh, you're, you're, we're really in the run-up to the election, Jagmeet Singh. There's lots of issues. What will be the top key issues for you uh, when you get back in the House? 
top three things, housing. We need more housing. Canadians are struggling with it. I've heard so many stories. Pharmacare for all. I really want a plan that lifts up everyone, that covers everyone in Canada. And finally, a Canadian version of a Green New Deal. We need to really take action on climate change, given the serious flooding we're seeing here in Ottawa and the impact of climate change on exacerbating um, ecological and environmental impacts on society, on our country, on people, on families. Forest fires, worse than we've ever seen before. We need to take action. That's interesting. So the Green New Deal, which comes from the United States for certain uh, Democratic uh, uh, politicians are saying that. Does that mean suspending all fossil fuel development in Canada? Is that one of the things that would be part of it? Well, what, what I want to do is move towards a full investment in uh, green energy, ending all investments at the federal stage, immediately ending all subsidies to fossil fuel sectors, and moving towards investments in renewable energy. And we'll have a very bold plan, and we're laying that out. We've done a lot of work in the past. Uh, Jack Layton, as you recall, was someone who first came out with uh, some bold steps around the environment. We've continued that tradition, and now we're going to put out a really strong plan. Jagmeet Singh, a fascinating memoir, Love and Courage. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks. Thank you. All right, coming up, extreme flooding in states of emergency across the country have shaped the debate, or have they reshaped the debate, about climate change. But so have high gas prices. The Scrum is next to talk about the politics of climate change. Our special guest will be Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Stay right here with Question Period. What we thought were one in 100 year floods are now happening every five years, in this case, every two years. So extreme flooding has forced communities across Ontario, Quebec and New Brunswick to declare states of emergency, mass damage, evacuations, the military being called in to help. And now new questions are being raised. Should people be forced to move from floodplains as the Quebec Premier has proposed? Do these floods change the debate around the most contentious election issue, which is climate change? Talk about all that and more. The scrum is here. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Joyce Napier is CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. Craig Oliver is CTV's Chief Political Commentator. And our special guest today is Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who is in Prince Albert. Great to see all of you. Uh, Premier Mo. Uh, thanks for being here. You've been a vocal opponent of the federal government's carbon tax plan, but the Prime Minister and the, the Premier of Quebec have linked the floods going on around the country to climate change. Do you believe these are climate change related events? We have never uh, in any way uh, uh, thought that, that climate change isn't occurring or isn't affecting our weather patterns. Uh, what we have always said is, uh, is a carbon tax is an ineffective tool that actually uh, won't reduce uh, the emissions and thereby address uh, this challenge that we need to be very serious about in, in Saskatchewan, in Canada and, and around the world. Just on the flooding that's going on right now, and we spoke to Ralph Goodale earlier, uh, does this change the political conversation about climate change now that the Prime Minister is openly saying, hey, this is a concrete example of what we're trying to deal with. I don't think it changes the conversation. What it does is it brings it to the forefront and makes it probably easier to have a conversation about it. I mean, nobody can deny this. Uh, this is in everybody's face. This is happening in a, in, in, in a lot of people's backyard. But, you know, to, to what Premier Mo said, perhaps we could have another conversation about, about this, this, this carbon tax. We should have a conversation about really lowering these emissions. What is the best way forward? We know that the federal government is telling us that pollution is no longer free. Yes, 
we know that already. Pollution is not free. We have the proof this weekend that it's not free. This is going to cost billions of dollars already. But perhaps we should broaden the conversation and perhaps Ottawa should stop saying that those that disagree with the plan and with the carbon tax are climate deniers because Premier Mo did not deny this. He's just saying that let's have a different conversation. I think it's time for that different conversation, well, that conversation to happen. should include what is the plan Absolutely. of those who are opposed to the carbon tax. Um, uh, there, there's a good argument that can be made about the carbon tax being costly. But what is the plan of those who say uh, we need to reduce greenhouse gases, uh, but not with that? Uh, we Bob, don't have one. Bob, so you got the floods on one hand, and, mm -hmm. and I wonder if that has an impact on the, on the debate. That's in some provinces. Meantime, in British Columbia, the price of gas is the highest anywhere it is than, than in North America. And that's become a crisis for the NDP Premier there, uh, Premier Horgan. So do these two competing stories... Uh, reflect or impact the debate on, on the climate change issue? Yeah, it does. I mean, look, part of the problem we have here in Ontario and in Quebec side is that a lot of these homes are built basically on floodplains. They shouldn't have been built there to begin with. And the Quebec Premier, I think, has the right approach by saying, you know, we're no, you're going to have to move. We're going to have to figure out a way to get you to move off of this because climate change is going to be a problem. We're probably going to have more rain like this and high waters. And so we have to move you away. But so the prime minister is being a bit disingenuous when he comes here and blames it all on climate change, when in fact people shouldn't be moving where they are. Having said that, we have to have, as to Joyce's point, a national conversation where we, we can agree on a, on, a, on a serious plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in this country. And it shouldn't be a, a political one between the yes. liberals and the conservatives or the NDP. Because uh, what is happening now in British Columbia is not going to work in favor of the argument of the federal government. Here they are paying punishing prices for gas. Their revenue-neutral uh, carbon tax is no longer revenue-neutral. So what kind of a conversation can we have when they're saying, no, no, what we're imposing is, is revenue-neutral. We know revenue neutrality is not forever, so let's have an open an honest conversation about this and quit making this a political conversation. Let's broaden it to a more logical way, one. No way anyone's going to wave a magic wand and get politics out of this picture. In a country yeah. like, uh, like ours, where the provinces have so much sovereignty of their own, you can't do it. Uh, before I let you go, China's always a big issue, and I know we've covered it. China has put a moratorium on exports of canola. Big, big issue in Saskatchewan. You've asked the Prime Minister for help, Premier Mo. Uh, you've said there's no concrete support. What do you need from the federal government to, to help farmers who can no longer export canola to China? Well, ultimately, uh, what we've asked for is... Uh, is a, a to expand a program that's already in place uh, to treat some of the symptoms that we are seeing this spring uh, in Western Canadian, uh, specifically Saskatchewan uh, ag producers, uh, the, the challenges that they're facing in, in access to capital to put their crop in the ground this year. And we've asked to expand uh, a, uh, an interest-free portion of, uh, of a cash advance program that they have. be very low cost as it's a program that uh, um, you know, has been very effective and it's a program that would be adv advantageous to our producers here this spring that quite frankly are sitting on some of their inventory uh, as it's not marketable in many cases uh, uh, with the uh, trade relationship that we have in Canada. Listen, uh, to the broader challenge, the trade relationship that we have uh, with China, which has been uh, strong 
uh, for so many years, and we are uh, trading and exporting into that nation uh, for a reason. Uh, it's a growing and, uh, and a strong market for us, and it's been a good relationship. Um, but it's been challenged with, uh, with uh, you know, some, we have some canola ships that are, that are sitting in their port uh, right now because they're, they're being uh, inspected multiple times, and some would say uh, uh, being ins inspected uh, 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 fairly aggressively. Um, we should be reciprocal in that trading relationship. There is a large, uh, large number of items that come in through our West Coast port from, from China, and if, uh, if we are not able to access that market with our wealth-generating uh, exports here from Canada, we should be uh, uh, reciprocal in our, our uh, investigation of, the, of the, uh, the products that are coming in through our West Coast. It, that, that only stands to reason uh, that a reciprocal trade relationship with uh, all of our nations uh, is, uh, is in order. Uh, Bob, just last comment on, on this China issue. Trudeau versus China. The canola issue in Saskatchewan is a big financial issue. What does it say about this big file between Canada and China? Well, look, it's all about the Huawei executive being detained. That's why Saskatchewan farmers are being hit so hard. But the Canadian government does not have a China policy. Its, its previous policy was, let's trade with them no matter what. I think the Prime Minister needs to get together uh, with the Premier's and with industry people and work out a policy of trying to deal with China because it's much more aggressive and it's a threat to the global, uh, global economic environment, frankly, not only militarily but economically. And we need to have a policy that we also, not only a made in Canada policy, but one that we can work with our allies. We also need to have an ambassador in China. Why don't we have an ambassador? Uh, unless the Chinese have said they're not going to give Agramon to any ambassador, that's possible, we don't know. But the, how can anyone deal at the levels in China that need to be dealt with without having well, an ambassador? Well, our foreign minister has not even gone to China, and this yeah. is a huge crisis here. Well, she should not, be in China. And we're not talking to them. You know what this has, should teach us is that we should diversify our trade, finally. Here we are, you know, relying on the Chinese for our canola and on the Americans for practically everything else. And we have learned, yes, but this Never, time right. we learned, and this should be a hard-earned lesson yeah. for Canada. You've got to diversify. Uh, all right, I'll give you a last word on that, Scott. Moore, Joyce, in go to fairness break. Uh, to that, the... Re the the reason we're in China is because we have diversified our trade uh, in the ag industry away from uh, the U.S., away from other areas of the world, uh, to the point uh, where canola has been a very successful export to China, making up now about half of our, our exports. So we do need to continue to diversify that trade, but the reason that we are in China is because we have diversified uh, those exports. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is there's a growing feeling of indifference, uh, quite frankly, uh, to the, the federal government uh, and our, our prime minister as to the seriousness uh, that they are treating uh, this trade issue uh, this trade issue as opposed to some of the other issues that are in front of them no ambassador in China no answer uh, uh, to our request on the uh, on the on the Advil if you will the uh, the interest uh, the interest free uh, um, uh, cash advance program and no uh, no real uh, for forcefulness on on engaging uh, with China and, and bringing China to the table to have a real serious discussion around uh, this trade issue all right I got to leave it there. I got to take a short break. Premier Mo, great to have you as our special guest on the Scrum. Thanks for joining us. But when we come back, is Canada headed for a garbage war with the Philippines? And what to do about the social media giant Facebook? Should Canada really take them to court? The Scrum is back next. This time, our special guest will be the former NDP leader, Tom Mulcair. Stay right here with Question Period.
we're working very hard to address the issue of the garbage. I think that there is a solution that can be found in the coming weeks. A garbage war with the Philippines? Well, that's what the president of the Philippines is threatening unless Canada takes back 100 containers that were shipped there six years ago by a Canadian company who mislabeled the product as recyclable plastic. In fact, it was hazardous waste. Even though the Philippine leader has a reputation as a thug who Human Rights Watch says has defended extrajudicial killing of civilians in his so-called war on drugs, in this case... He actually has a point. Canada has violated a convention on shipping garbage. Does this do damage to the Liberal government's environmental brand in the run-up to the election? What can be done? To talk about that and the damning report from Canada's privacy watchdog on Facebook and his move to take them to court, the scrum is back. Bob Fife is here. Joyce Napier's back. Craig Oliver's back. And our special guest this round is the former NDP leader, current CTV political commentator. The only way to get him back here in Ottawa <laughs> is to give him an award, which he got from the Francophonie. Congratulations, Tom Thanks, Mulcair. Evan. Welcome back. Great I to hope see you don't have hives here in Ottawa. <laughs> I'm having a ball. Nice to see so many people. And great to be with you live for It's once. so great uh, to have you. Tom, uh, is it a black eye for Canada's reputation as an environmental leader, this whole garbage situation? Well, given the fact that the criticism's coming from Duterte, probably not that much. But I think we should take care of the problem because it's a needless black eye. Yeah, Bob, what, what, what's your sense of this? I mean, it's been festering for Hello. years. This is a no-brainer. We've shipped hazardous waste of the Philippines. It's a poor country. It violates an international convention. Mr. Trudeau is Mr. Environment. Fix the problem. Send a ship over, put the garbage in, bring it back here and bury it. End of stories. Oh Joyce Canada's back with word, garbage. One word. Shame. Shame. If you're getting lectured by Duterte, right. that means, you know, you've reached really the bottom of this. And this is Mr. Clean. Uh, Trudeau is Mr. Environment. Mr. Clean. And we've shipped our, not only have we shipped our garbage and the wrong garbage, because this was supposed to be recyclable plastic, we have, you know, really shipped rubbish. And now we're not taking it back. Like, can you get, can you get more shameful? Right. You know, the Chinese used to take a lot of our garbage, and even they're saying, no, thank you, no more uh, to us. Uh, somebody, there's a lot we don't know about this, I think. I mean, somebody obviously agreed to take it. What happened uh, there? Meantime, of course, as we're all observing, this does nothing for the reputation of the prime minister for being the sort of greenest prime minister we've ever had. Well, that looks bad on Also, there are some large number of Filipino voters, particularly in Winnipeg, mm -hmm. that they shouldn't, they should bring this garbage back because they may vote for the NDP. Very large uh, Filipino community in Montreal as well. well but it, probably why the, the, the Filipino leader is spewing garbage on this because the remittances that the Filipino community pays back to the Philippines is so vital. I don't think this is going to war. Nonetheless, doesn't look and, it. And by the way, two years ago, we promised to look after this in yeah. meetings with the, with the Philippine president and others. There is a very big environmental movement, believe it or not, in the Philippines, and they're furious about it. Canada looks really bad over there. Let's move to Facebook. The Privacy Commissioner, pretty extraordinary press conference with the Privacy Commissioner of, of BC, uh, released a very damaging report about Facebook, alleging that their privacy protections for Canada were weak, their treatment of sensitive data irresponsible. And then to top it off, Facebook just ignored his, 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 his recommendations. Uh, Tom, what's your take on this? Uh, what does the government have to do vis-a-vis -vis Facebook, who basically thumbed their nose at the regulator? I think the government has to bring legislation before Parliament rapidly, and I think all sides would 
agree with it. That's what I took away mostly from that press conference was we don't have the tools right now to deal s strongly and harshly with Facebook. They're facing a $5 billion fine in the U.S. That gets people's attention, including your shareholders. We have nothing of the kind here in Canada. That was the main message. And the government did propose legislation in December, uh, passed legislation, uh, to sort of deal with some of these issues. But two of the most important they didn't deal with. They did not increase the powers of the privacy commissioner. Uh, many people think they should have. He certainly thinks they should have. But nor did they deal with this whole business of why the political parties are exempt from the privacy law. Uh, I think that's a, a question a lot of people are going to be asking them when the House comes back. That's right. Look, let, let's flash back to when the Liberals came into power. They love Facebook. They love Google. Who are their lobbyists? Liberal lobbyists yep. working for Facebook and Google. And a lot of them have and gone they, to work for the Liberals since. They, and they've gone back, to, back and forth. And so they haven't taken any action against Facebook or Google over these privacy issues. They are aware of it, but they, are, they thought this was a cool thing to do. Yep. Now we're hearing from, the, from uh, the Privacy Commissioner, but we have it in Great Britain and we have it in the United States, where they have teeth. They go after exactly. them. They fine them when they pr violate privacy. Now, it's too late now. We have to wait until after the election campaign. But shame on the government because they knew this was a problem a long time ago. Yeah, and Joyce, I spoke to the privacy commissioner. He said, I need teeth. I don't even have the power Absolutely. to find them. I got nothing. But, you know, we associate Facebook with friends and sort of this <laughs> la-la-la company, whatever. They are predatory. Yep. They're in it for the money. Yep. We're in it for the friendship. Oh, well, it's so much fun. I got in touch with an old friend. Here's all my personal. Information. And here's, yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, people have to be very, very careful with their private information and with putting it out there on Facebook because, first of all, it's hard to erase whatever you put there. And, I mean, these people are predatory. They want your stuff. They want to make money. They've made billions of dollars. Mr. Zuckerberg is a very rich man, and he's not rich because he's an NGO. He's rich because it's a big corporation with predatory practices. Everybody wake up. Right, and they've ignored the regulator to talk about that. I spoke mm -hmm. to NDP uh, MP Charlie Angus, who was the complainant in this, mm -hmm. so he's got skin in the game here, Tom. He says Canada should join other countries and think Absolutely. about antitrust laws and breaking up these giants now, like Facebook and, and Google and other. What's your take on that? Is I that think the Europeans have been showing exactly. the way. Their antitrust legislation is tough. Their commissioner is really tough, and they've been going after them for real. And there's a reason for it, because it's exactly as Joyce just said. They are that big, they are that powerful, they are that rich. You've got to fight them on even ground, because it's a question of whether or not governments can take on these giants in the new world. Yeah, they're, they're too and big they to can, regulate. They can. The Europeans have and oh, have yeah. done it successfully. And Donald so Trump what flew are we to their defense for? when they were threatened with massive yeah, fines. what are we waiting for? All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Tom Walker, Bob Five, Joyce Napier, Craig Oliver, thanks so much for being here. Of course, Parliament's back tomorrow. From all of us to all the families dealing with the devastating floods going on in so many provinces, we're thinking of you. Take good care. We hope this does pass soon. We will see you back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching.